Hey everyone, if you love listening to Curbsiders and want to enhance the experience, then now is a great time to join the Curbsiders Patreon with new annual memberships where you can save 10% off the monthly rate. You'll have the option to hear all the episodes ad-free plus twice monthly bonus episodes. You can sign up at patreon.com slash curbsiders. This is a great way to use that CME money that's probably burning a hole in your pocket. Plus support the show so we can keep bringing you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, mini series like teach and addiction medicine, our digest newsletter, and of course, expand our video content. So join the Cashlack family today at patreon.com slash curbsiders. Paul, why did the ghosts go into the bar? I feel like I should be able to figure this one out, but I... <laughs> I don't have the energy. Why, Matt, why did the ghost go into the bar? For the booze. That's a great joke. <laughs> Maybe I should stop there. Just uh, straight up. That is you have not, one not ball? A bit of fat on that. That is perfect. <laughs> Matt, would you like to hear some skeleton puns? Oh, well, of course. This They're is very humorous. <laughs> and to follow up, it's going to be a great Halloween. I, I can feel it in my bones. So these are Ew. both courtesy of good housekeeping, by the way. So that's uh, just to give you a sense of where I'm judging my puns from. It seems like it, Paul. I'm not surprised. <laughs> not your edgiest. Yeah. Not the edgiest humor I've heard from you. The uh, Women's Wear Daily was not very helpful, so I had to dig <laughs> a little bit deeper. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. All right. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with my great friend and America's primary care physician, America's spookiest primary care physician. <laughs> Probably true. <laughs> Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul, how are you doing? I am overall well, Matt. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm doing well. And we have a ton of things to get to tonight, uh, really wide ranging. We're going to talk about blood pressure, vaccines. We're going to talk about anticoagulation, uh, cotton fever. You'll explain what that is. A bunch more stuff. So this is going to be a lot of fun. And we have a great co-host. If you're watching the video, you can already see him. But Paul, remind people what we do on the show and then introduce our, our, our wonderful co-host. Well, sure, man. Typically, with the Curbsiders, we are the well, we're always the internal medicine podcast. But usually, we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. We have an expert with us, um, but Matt and I are also going to serve as like fake experts, uh, Matt more than me, and just recap some articles that have tickled our fancy or perhaps that have irritated us, and sort of talk about whether they'll change our practice, um, any potential biases or flaws, and to help us figure this out is our resident epidemiologist, my, my low grade, one of my heroes. Um, Friend, dare I say, Dr. Rahul Ganatra. Rahul, great to see you. How are you doing? Oh, shucks, guys. I'm I'm gonna tear up. I'm doing great. <laughs> yeah, Rahul, and just just to warn you, in the spring, uh, I know there's some conferences in your home city. So Paul and I are probably gonna have to like sleep on your couch or something like that. Or if you have two couches, I, I'd prefer not to share a couch with Paul. We'll share. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> I'm very excited for that. Yes, we'll we'll move kids around and and make it work for you to each have an adult sized bed. Yeah. 
Uh, that 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 will be delightful. We have a lot to get to. So and and maybe at the end we'll even get into some picks of the week. But first, Paul, uh, I would love it if you would tell me about what is miss cuffing, and uh, can we can we talk <laughs> about can we talk about blood pressure here? Is it cuffing season? I can't I can't remember when that's supposed to correlate with. I guess that that came and went probably. But I I'm here to tell you about an article from. Ishigami et al. That was in JAMA Internal Medicine that looked at the effective cup size on the accuracy of blood pressure readings. And this is from the delightfully named CUF, parentheses, SZ, randomized crossover trial. I didn't actually investigate what that stands for, but it's it's fine. It's it, at least kind of appropriate. The CUF part is relatively self-explanatory. But Matt, we as internists treat a lot of blood pressure stuff, um, hypertension usually. And it's it's a really, it's like obviously a very prevalent diagnosis. It's a huge cardiovascular risk factor. And the medications that we treat it with are not necessarily benign, like they are necessary, but they do have potential side effects. So it's really important that we diagnose it correctly and that we have accurate readings to then therefore manage it correctly. So we know um, both anecdotally and, and from some studies that we don't do a great job of measuring blood pressure appropriately in mm -hmm. outpatient clinics. And this has been looked at in prior studies in terms of the effect of blood pressure cuff size on the accuracy of these measurements. It's been looked at in manual cuffs previously, so things that require escultatory methods, but there's not a whole lot of data about the automated blood pressure cuffs that tend to be used in clinical practice now. And so what the authors were hoping to figure out is, does it matter if we use an incorrectly sized blood pressure cuff in measuring a patient's blood pressure with these automated blood pressure cuffs? Um, which is, I think, really clinically relevant. It impacts how we might actually manage these patients. So I, I, this was a study that sort of hit my heartstrings, which is not, I think, the right saying, but I'm tired, so you're just going to have to deal with it. <laughs> so that was the question. So the big, the bottom line is, what was the impact of using a regular-sized blood pressure cuff versus an appropriately-sized blood pressure cuff on automated blood pressure readings? So regular being sort of the standard size, and then the appropriate size being if you actually measured the patient's arm and then chose whether it would be a small, large, or extra-large cuff or, indeed, the regular-sized cuff. Remember in med school, they used to tell us everyone was 75 kilograms, but now everyone's more like 100 kilograms, at least uh, a lot of the patients that I'm seeing. So so if you're using a, a cuff meant for a 75 kilogram person, the arm circumference is probably going to be different than uh, than your 100 kilogram person. It, it probably doesn't matter. I think it's all just, it was probably just a manual cuff phenomenon. Not, not It doesn't matter if you're using an automated cuff. Uh, just classic Watto pedagogical method. I, I love it. <laughs> This, this was, in fact, a positive study, meaning it, it did, in fact, matter. And it, it's the measurements done with the blood pressure cuff that was too large or too small, either way, were inaccurate readings. If the cuff was too big for the patient, um, you know, they had like a slightly, uh, it actually read slightly low compared to the actual true blood pressure for the patients. Not much, like three millimeters of mercury, I think, was the, um, the number that sticks in my head. So it could be clinically significant, but not huge. But conversely, if you required a larger blood pressure cuff and you used one that was either a size too small or worse, two sizes too small, um, then those actually measured significantly higher blood pressure readings, like close to like 20 uh, millimeters systolic. So like not, <laughs> not nothing, like things that really the difference between hypertension and not hypertension. So you're, you're this is a diagnosis that would, you know, change insurance rates and change the way that you manage these patients versus, you know, a healthy patient. Um, so it was really significant. And it seems like the larger the cuff that was required for the arm, to be uh, appropriately fitted, the more important this was. So uh, it's really, I, I think, a very practical study that actually has a lot of real-world implications. And I, I wonder, having read through it, we can talk about sort of the, the methods and stuff, but sort of just hearing this initially, like what, what questions you had and sort of what you thought about the initial read-through. Rahul, you, I, I want to hear what you had to say about this. Any, any chinks in the armor of this study? Yeah, I mean, from a... Uh, 
pedagogical and learning standpoint, I really couldn't find a lot to um, take issue with about the conduct of this study. Um, they did a uh, randomized crossover design where every patient, you know, kind of uh, got um, their blood pressure measured by a cuff that was either appropriate, too small, or too big. So effectively serving as their own control. So that's a very strong type of study design. And the authors um, detailed how they measured the blood pressure, and they kind of did it exactly according to the 2017 AHA recommendations. They even included a washout period of two minutes of walking between each blood pressure measurement, yeah. to kind of undo the effect of the sort of you know sitting quietly. So they really went to great pains to do this um, very well. So you know it seems very well conducted from that standpoint. Um, so the only things I could really you know think to talk about with this paper are in how we apply these results to, um, you know, the rest of the world and the rest of the sort of uh, target population of people in whom we care about their blood pressure. And, you know, I was struck that the mean BMI in this study was 28. And as Paul kind of laid out very well, the, the relationship between cuff size and arm size, if you're using a cuff that's too small, that's really likely to overestimate blood pressure. So I would expect that this degree of mismatch might be even worse in the real world uh, for patients who are larger than a BMI of 28. So something to keep in mind, these, this degree of mismatch might be underestimated uh, in the real world. And Paul, the I think the authors made this point that if you buy a blood pressure cuff from your local pharmacy, a lot of the times it only comes with one size cuff. So if that cuff is way too big or way too small, you're going to get really inaccurate readings. It's it's tough. I think you you have to just tell the patients trying to get a cuff you know, cuff that is appropriately sized to their arm. And the the authors went into a lot of detail, Paul, about how they measured the, how to measure the arm, like measuring from the acromion to the olecranon and then the midway point, and you, you measure the circumference of the arm at that point. And then they, they actually list like the size. So I'm not sure, Paul, do you think we should be measuring like the circumference of someone's arm and then tell them like, you should have a cuff that's like small, regular, large, or extra large based on how many centimeters. I'm not sure how crazy you're going to go with this or just based on the size of the cuff you use in your clinic. I, I don't know what's the practical right. I, way. I think realistically, this is going to be being cognizant that it makes a difference. And if you know you have a patient that's going to require a larger cuff size, just by dint of familiarity, making sure that you advise that when they actually buy their blood pressure cuff. Like the measurement is obviously ideal, but I think, you know, again, the practicality versus the aspirational, there's going to be a little bit of a difference. Anything else you wanted to point out with this study or, I mean, I think it has obviously like really strong implications, but any other implications of this? The, the question, I mean, it's not even really much of a question, but I guess the, the consideration that I would think about is because this is a good experimental study, they controlled for all the variables. And then I think in the clinic, you know, there's variabilities that are not just blood pressure cuff size where, you know, I have patients with their legs crossed and being talked to with the full bladder and a recent tobacco use and all that kind of stuff, most of which probably will cause an increase in measured blood pressure as well. So I just wonder to what degree this actually compounds what is already sort of potentially um, elevated blood pressure reading in clinics. So I think there's just, but for this study itself, it's a great study. It answers a really important question. I think it should be practice changing and um, policy changing for a lot of practices. So I I, I love this study. Uh, and I know it does make a whole lot of great teaching points from a sort of an analysis standpoint, but in terms of what it has to say, I think it's really important. So for me, this is the rare Williams, like five hotcakes, I think. Like this is top tier, should be like clinic changing practice. Paul, can we get can we change them to spooky cakes or are you are you oh, totally boycotting me. the fact that this is a Halloween episode? 
I've already humiliated myself. So like it's if we can <laughs> we can make a spooky case, we can call whatever you want to, Matt. <laughs> I thought your joke was good. Your your joke was good, Paul. You know, Oh no, on. I meant by endorsing the whole hotcake rating system. My joke was great. Um, <laughs> All right. Next up, uh, Paul, this this is something that I've really wanted to cover. This is the study by Walsh et al. Uh, this is the Renoir trial group, Paul. Uh, and, and they were looking at the efficacy and safety of a bivalent RSV prefusion F vaccine in older adults. This came out in New England Journal April of 2023. Uh, it is now approved for uh, two purposes. This vaccine is approved for pregnant individuals at 32 through 36 weeks gestational age to protect infants from birth to six months of age as well. So we're going to be getting a lot of questions about that. And and I have already started to get a lot of questions about it. Um, So I wanted to go through this. And RSV in older adults, like we, I mostly thought of it as something in kids, but RSV does affect older adults, something like up to 100,000 RSV-associated hospitalizations per year and up to 10,000 deaths per year in older adults, and that's according to the CDC. And there's been attempts in the past at vaccines that didn't go so well, but uh, now we have this prefusion F vaccine, and the top-line results are that this prevents RSV uh, associated respiratory illness and caused only mild side effects for the most part. There were some serious adverse events, but they were rare. And the efficacy was about 67% for preventing infection with two or more symptoms and 86% at preventing infection with three or more symptoms. Any questions so far, Paul or Rahul? Questions or comments? I, I'm just curious, are you already getting questions in your, you know, from patients about should they be getting the RSV vaccine? Yeah, literally yesterday, multiple patients and uh, most days in my inbox, there's like, I have a, like this triple demic of RSV, COVID and influenza. I'm getting questions like, which vaccine should I get? When should I get them? The timing of it. And it is... Yeah, we don't. I would say, Paul, do we have clear guidance and great answers for for all of this? <laughs> Except Share for decision flu. making, Matt. We should just be sharing decisions <laughs> left and right. Just a lot of sharing. Yeah. So that's the point. You're, Paul's bringing up the fact that this was approved for through shared decision making. You know, so the CDC, ASIP, they said you may consider giving this uh, to adults over sixty, um, and and through a process of shared decision making and. You know, what does shared decision making mean? So if if they're recommending a vaccine outright, then the default decision for most patients that fall into that group would be to get the vaccine. But for shared decision making, you kind of take individual characteristics into account and how much the patient is likely to benefit from it. And so this is one of those shared decision making vaccines. You know, so they're like, talk to your healthcare provider about it. <laughs> <laughs> I beg of you not. But yeah. no, Matt, I guess I wanted to ask you in terms of the outcomes looked at. So, you know, reading through the paper, the whole setup is that RSV actually has significant impact on adult patients. There's hospitalizations, there's mortality. It's probably underreported because we don't always test for it. Um, in terms of the outcomes that were actually studied in this trial, um, like what what did they do with these sort of hard endpoints in terms of like death and hospitalizations? Because I was I was like, oh no, yeah. I, like now I'm excited about this. And then I had a hard time kind of parsing out whether that was looked at right. or, you know, whether how that was sort of uh, accounted for when they actually did this yeah. trial. 
at this time, that is one of the limitations. They are looking at that, but this was a, a it was a pre-specified interim analysis. And basically they said like, if we have enough patients that have RSV with two or more symptoms, then we'll look at that. And then if they, we have enough patients with three or more symptoms, we'll look at that. They needed at least 12 hospitalizations or you know severe cases of RSV, which was like hospitalization or need for mechanical ventilation, that sort of thing. And they did not reach that with the interim analysis. And part of what they're still looking at, they gave one shot. This is a one-shot vaccine. They're not yet sure if it's going to last for one season or two RSV seasons and if you'll need to be revaccinated. And so this, they're still collecting data on this. And what was also kind of odd about this is that they were studying it during, you know, the lockdowns for COVID-19 and during COVID-19. So I, I imagine that affected a little bit the RSV season. So it, I think that all makes it a little bit hard to interpret. We can really just say with confidence that it, it does seem to prevent RSV infection um, in adults. Uh, there were a small number of, but there were only a small number, like less than 50 uh, patients had RSV with two or more symptoms. So Rahul, any, any other comments about this? I know, I know you looked through the paper as well. This podcast is brought to you by Pathway. Pathway is a new clinical decision support tool that is completely free to use. Pathway empowers practitioners to make evidence-based decisions quickly and efficiently. I was just using Pathway tonight. I'm uh, giving a talk on resistant hypertension, and I thought I'd check it on Pathway, and it, it has the guidelines beautifully organized, easy to access. Pathway has this user-friendly interface, and it condenses down the guidelines, trials, and medical data for easy interpretation, and you can apply it at the point of care. Pathway is also completely free to use and is accessible to all healthcare professionals regardless of your financial resources. The app is updated daily, which keeps its users in the loop with the latest medical research and guidelines. This way, you can stay updated without having to sift through piles of papers. Pathway also offers a weekly primary care and internal medicine digest. These are short, concise emails that allow doctors and other medical practitioners to stay up to date with the latest research and guidelines and keep their knowledge current without spending hours reading those dense journals. So take advantage of Pathway today to improve your clinical decision-making process and enhance your patient care. You can download the Pathway app at pathway.md. Again, I'll reiterate, this is a really easy to use, easily accessible, easily navigatable app that kind of condenses down the things that you need to know. So I'd, I'd encourage you to give Pathway a try. That's pathway.md. You're absolutely correct. This was a planned interim analysis of the phase three trial for this prefusion vaccine. And you're right. There was a small number of events, only 44 cases um, across the 17,000 or so people who got the vaccine. And the primary outcome in this study was uh, symptomatic RSV, uh, lower respiratory tract illness that was diagnosed by confirmed PCR or an antigen test within seven days of uh, symptom onset with at least two or at least three symptoms. And that's kind of a lot for a primary outcome. As Paul pointed out, that's not hospitalizations, that's not deaths, that's really just symptomatic lower respiratory tract disease. And then as Matt pointed out, the vaccine effectiveness, or excuse me, the vaccine efficacy was um, 67% for infection with two or more symptoms, and then 86% for infection with three or more symptoms. And, you know, for any positive study like this, I always like to go back to the uh, clinicaltrials.gov registry to, you know, look at the original primary outcome and just see if, you know, there were any changes made. And in this study, there was a change made. 
the protocol is kind of difficult to sift through because it's long, but um, the original primary outcome was moderate or severe RSV, lower respiratory mm. tract infection. And what we see in the paper is this two primary outcomes of RSV, lower respiratory tract infection with at least two or at least three symptoms. So anytime you see that, it's worthwhile to sort of look for a justification for, you know, why was the primary outcome changed? Because the situation you want to avoid is, you know, significant results being created by uh, changing to to a, a different primary outcome than what the initial plan was. And the authors say clearly in the manuscript that, you know, severe RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection was not included the, in the analysis because the number of cases of severe disease that had accrued by the data cutoff date did not meet the pre-specified minimum number for the interim mm-hmm. analysis. So they justified that. Um, it makes, you know, the, the learning point that anytime you do see a positive uh, outcome, especially one that seems a little strange, maybe not what you were expecting, it's always worth it to go to the protocol and verify that that's what the original intent mm-hmm. was. And, you know, this this study had a lot of patients, like almost over 34,000 patients, but they, they did exclude patients who were immunocompromised. And the consort diagram, Rahul, which you always talk to us about, was interesting because they didn't show exactly how many patients they screened. They just oh. sort of, you know, did you did you notice that as well? I did. I couldn't and find the total, like, pull, like what did they funnel it down yes, from? Yes, I just love it. I, there's a missing box here, the how many patients screen. <laughs> you are correct. If you're watching the life. YouTube feed, he was holding up where he drew the box in that was missing. <laughs> yes, you are correct. And, you know, it's part of the template of the consort diagram. So if you are making a consort diagram, you have to very deliberately not include that. You know, for a big trial like this, um, I'm sort of less concerned um, about funny business, but I do want to just get a sense of, you know, how highly selected is the study population? Mm-hmm. Um, because you also sort of care how representative of the target population is a study population. Right. Because um, when you're thinking about, you know, making a, po- a recommendation for a population, you want to know how closely does the study population resemble the population you're going to apply it to. Yeah, and that brings me to one of the the big limitations that a lot of the editorialists pointed out is that this was really most of the patients were si- between 60 and 69 years old and almost close to half of the patients didn't have any serious comorbidities. So and then maybe that's why they didn't see that many severe cases because they were just not looking at the right population, but they didn't have a lot of patients over 80, they didn't have immunocompromised patients. So my question is like if we give it to those patients, are patients over 80 or immunocompromised patients going to actually respond to the vaccine and will they actually benefit from it, the people who need it most? And so it, this trial, I think, was, wasn't was powered to answer that question. We can say that it prevents RSV, you know, symptomatic RSV in relatively healthy adults over 60, but it, it kind of lacked that question, that older, sicker group, um, is it going to work for them? I guess to round it out here, I would just say that the, the some other things that we don't know practically about this is like, is it safe to be given with our uh, with the influenza vaccine and the COVID nineteen vaccine? You know, can you get them all three at once, or should you space them out? And how long is how long is it going to last when you get protection? I just mentioned about older, sicker patients. Those are the ones that. I'm more likely to recommend it to just because like if I'm making shared decision make, I'm like, you're the one that seems like they should need this if it works, but we don't yet know. So 
this is an interim analysis. So I'm telling a lot of my patients, like I'll probably know more in a year or two when like we have the rest of the information from this. But right now it seems to protect patients from getting a symptomatic infection, but whether or not it protects you from being hospitalized, we don't know. And then uh, the cost of this is it could be if if they're on Medicare Part D for now, it, it's somehow covered, but that's, this is the Medicare Part D, the drug benefit part of Medicare Part D. So it, it seems like it's covered right now, but they have to get it at their local pharmacy, not in a doctor's office, usually for, for things covered under Part D. And then uh, if they have private insurance, they would have to pay out of pocket for this. And it's probably going to be around, let's say, 200 to $300 just to use round numbers. So it could be it could be pretty expensive right now. So I would give this, I guess, 3.5 hotcakes. I mean, I'm... I'm, I'm Cautiously optimistic spooky cakes. Uh, yeah, right, come on. Spooky cakes with uh, some candy corn. Um, I'm optimistic that maybe when we get more data that this this could be a vaccine that's going to prevent uh, hospitalization, death, you know, some of those big hard endpoints we care about, but we just don't know yet. So I'm not rushing all my patients out to get this. Uh, it's just a bit tricky. But patients that are older with underlying cardiopulmonary disease that I don't think would do well if they got RSV, you know, I'm I'm telling them it's okay to get it. This podcast is brought to you by Locum Story. What has changed in healthcare? The opportunities, the lifestyle, and you. Your needs, wants, and goals are probably different than they were five years ago, or at least I hope they are. Now is the perfect time to explore Locum's tendons, opportunities, and see how they might fit into your career story. There's not a one-size-fits-all solution for everyone, and the variety of opportunities might surprise you. Start your research at locumstory.com, an unbiased educational resource about Locum's tendons. You'll hear firsthand stories about the many different reasons why physicians choose Locum's and how it works for them. The Locum Story website also has tools that let you explore Locum's pay and demand for your specialty and compare different Locum's tendons agencies. There's even a simple quiz to see if Locum's is right for you. Locum's could be an essential part of your career that adapts to your needs. Do your own research at locumstory.com. That's locumstory.com. Can I ask Rahul just a quick trial type question? Oh, um, I know it, we, I, we're running short on time for this particular topic, but in terms of how they actually assess whether someone got infection or not, I'm just wondering how reliable that is. Like the patients, I guess, had a diary or they sort of self-reported symptoms. That's sort of what triggered for the actual self-swabbing and that kind of stuff. And I can see it going either way where either someone who's enrolled in the vaccine trial is hyper vigilant about their <laughs> symptoms. Like the number of times I wake up with like a scratchy throat, I'm like, nope, I'm fine. Maybe, you know, by the end of the day, like is fairly common as opposed to the person who, you know, maybe is like me and it's like, no, it's going to be okay. And then maybe they even had sort of like some clinical RSV and just never actually swabbed themselves. Like, I guess I wonder from a design standpoint, like, I don't know how you do it any differently, but like, do we have a sense of how effective this is in terms of actually capturing diagnoses? Yeah, I, that's a it's a very germane question. Uh, if you were enrolled in a, a vaccine trial, it stands to reason you would be kind of thinking about you know symptoms that could be related to the disease you might be vaccinated against. So my thought there is that uh, it, as long as there was not a reason to worry that the detection of the outcome was uh, different between the placebo and the vaccine group, even if the sort of vigilance that people have. Uh, in the trial is heightened compared to what the general population would have, as long as there's not a source of sort of differential ascertainment between the placebo group and the vaccine group, I wouldn't be worried that that would introduce a source of bias as far as, you know, vaccine efficacy. But if you're, if you're doing a bunch of swabs, 
in you know one group but not the other group, that would be something that would be knowable. Mm-hmm. That's probably in the supplement, and that would be how I would investigate you know whether that was a source of bias, as if there were dramatically more swabs uh, in one group than the other, which I, I yeah. have no reason to expect. You know, it's it's not like we saw more cases than they expected. You know, that's right. so <laughs> right. that's yeah. so yeah. probably. I think there probably wasn't that much more. I, I doubt there was that much more undetected. I think it was probably a hard time to study this, to give yeah, to give the sure. authors their due. I mean, it's, it must have been hard to study it when people are like trying to avoid respiratory illnesses. That's like a hard time to study something that prevents <laughs> respiratory. <laughs> no one's going outside. Everyone's wearing masks. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So Rahul, let's talk about a trial. And does this have a clever name? Tell me it does. This has perhaps the cleverest of names, and I will tell you the name, and then I would just like to pause to hear Paul's reflections on the name. So this is the Frail AF study, Paul. Yeah, it's. I mean, cardiologists have no shame. Like, there's just there's nothing else to say at this point. They sh- they should be ashamed of themselves. Clearly, they're not with the number of AF trials they've had. Paul, I think for the first one they didn't know, but I feel I think by now they know, and now they're just trying to be cool. At some point, one of their millennial medical students who's just kind of hanging around <laughs> had to have said something. But I, so it's, yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. They know what they're doing now. <laughs> Can we pause for one second, Paul Renoir? And and the so the, the for the one that I just presented, that was Renoir. And then the, the arm for pr- the pregnancy, you know, vaccination and pregnancy was Matisse. What do you say? Classy. Classy, classy, like ID okay. docs are. Yes, that's that's nice. <laughs> okay, thank you, Paul. All right, Rahul. Now let's proceed with the frail AF. <laughs> Moving right along. Uh, okay, uh, so this is the frail AF study uh, by Linda Justin and colleagues, and this was published in an August issue of Circulation, and the results were also presented at the European Society of Cardiology meeting. So what was the question that this paper was asking? Well, this was asking whether frail elderly patients who are already on a vitamin K antagonist for atrial fibrillation, should they be switched to a DOAC? Okay. And why is the study important? Well, there's clear evidence that DOACs are superior to warfarin for stroke risk reduction in AFib. And that's in terms of efficacy and safety and also convenience because of the lack of any monitoring that's really needed. However, elderly patients and frail patients in particular were excluded from those trials. The sort of seminal ones were Rocket AF, uh, Aristotle, and Rely. And so there's uncertainty about whether this population is going to experience the same benefit from DOACs as the, the populations who were studied. And we know that a large proportion of uh, elderly patients with AFib are still on warfarin. Estimates are like 30 to 40%. And so the question of whether they should switch is, is kind of relevant. So before we get into uh, you know questions that you have that I should address in my appraisal, I'll just tell you the top line results because I feel like that's how we all kind of read papers, isn't it? Just look at the conclusion, then yep. decide if you have to figure it out. Um, so the the top the take home top line of this paper was that switching patients who were on a vitamin K antagonist to a DOAC was associated with more bleeding without better stroke risk reduction, and so much so that the trial was stopped early for futility. So this was therefore a positive trial, albeit for a bad outcome. So I'll stop there. Do people have uh, thoughts or questions that I should uh, address? Yeah, I mean, this was an open label, open label trial. Um, does that concern you for for this particular study? 
Yeah. So that's a great question. We talked a little bit before uh, recording about, you know, when does blinding sort of help and when is blinding kind of necessary? So anytime you're talking about adjudication or ascertainment of outcomes that might depend on knowing your treatment allocation status, blinding could be important. So the situation where blinding is kind of critically important is when the outcome is a symptom because, you know, your subjective experience of a disease, you know, could be modified by your knowledge of whether you were receiving uh, a treatment or not. So outcomes that are symptoms are kind of the case where blinding really matters. And then outcomes where blinding probably matters less are things where there's really no adjudication required. And kind of the best example is mortality. Either a person is alive (laughs) or they are dead. So um, knowing the treatment is sort of less relevant there. So as you mentioned, Matt, this was a pragmatic, multi-center, open-label superiority trial. It was done at seven sites in the Netherlands from 2018 to 2022, and the funding for this came from the Dutch government. And what the investigators actually did was they randomized 1,300 patients in one-to-one fashion, all of whom were had to be sort of doing well and stable on a vitamin K antagonist. Uh, they randomized one-to-one to either staying on the VKA or switching to a DOAC. And I'll just say that this was done in the Netherlands, so they weren't using warfarin. The VKAs that were used in this study were two things called echinocumerol, I apologize if I mispronounced that, or finprocumon. Not familiar with either of those. I see why they didn't catch on. That's rough. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had to Google these, and apparently they're, they're more commonly used in Europe, and the thought is that they are sort of less vulnerable to individual differences in drug metabolism. So that's sort of the reason for that. But anyway, these are all patients with non-valvular AFib. They all had to have uh, creatinine clearance above 30 uh, and sort of stable outpatients. And um, I don't know if I mentioned this already, but the choice of DOAC was left to the discretion of treating clinicians. That's sort of the pragmatic nature. Um, all four DOACs were used. Uh, the most common in this study was rivaroxaban. It was 50%, followed by pixaban at 17%, and then adoxaban. Uh, another 16% in dabigatran was uh, just under 10%. And the primary outcome was a composite of major and clinically relevant non-major bleeding at one year. And thromboembolic events was looked at as a secondary outcome. And the primary outcome of bleeding in this study at one year happened in 9.4% of patients who stayed on a vitamin K antagonist. And this occurred in 15.3% of patients who were switched to a DOAC. That's a hazard ratio of 1.69, and the confidence interval indicates statistical significance. So questions people have um, before I tell you a little more? Yeah, Rahul, I, I wonder if you if they addressed sort of INR control in this particular trial, because I, you know, speaking of pragmatically, I can tell in my own practice, a lot of the times if I have an older patient who is on warfarin and they're just rock solid stable and their INR has been between two and three for a bazillion years, like I would have much less enthusiasm for switching them to a DOAC than I do for the patient who has this wildly label INR. And I just, I, I wonder if the, if that calculus kind of factored in to the study design or sort of what the INR control looked like in this particular patient population, because I, I feel like that's a big consideration in terms of making actually the pragmatic decision to make the switch. Yeah. Um, so excellent question. And this really gets at the sort of, um, you know, external validity of these results and the application of these results to patients like ours. Um, so to answer your question, Paul, uh, they didn't, um, they made a decision not to report uh, the time in the therapeutic range or TTR for patients um, in the study. And, you know, in some interviews with the study authors that were um, 
published around the time of the European Society of Cardiology, the authors kind of describe how the Netherlands is really a place where uh, vitamin K antagonist management is really quite good. Um, the um, ability for people to kind of get their INRs monitored and uh, to have, you know, an integrated health system that kind of uh, is able to coordinate all that is is pretty high. And time in the therapeutic range there is very typically, you know, up to 60 to 75 percent. The United States, on the other hand, is is lower. Sixty um, percent is kind of an optimistic estimate from the literature I found. I'll link that in the show notes. But you know, these were all patients who were stable and doing well on a vitamin K antagonist, and they were all patients who were tolerating a vitamin K antagonist. So the study question is asking about switching, not necessarily starting de novo. So these patients are a little selected in the sense that they have already been doing great on a vitamin K antagonist. Yeah, because practically speaking, Paul was making this point before. He's mostly mostly switching people to a, a if they're on a, a vitamin K antagonist, switching them over if they're not doing well. How would you apply these results in, in practice if, if someone was asking you? Yeah. I mean, so despite the author's conclusion that, you know, there was increased bleeding with DOAX, I think, you know, Matt, your question is about, you know, figuring out how to apply that to our patients. And to me, this all comes down to, you know, are there any sources of chance or bias we can identify that could explain that finding that we see uh, in the results? And there are a couple sources of bias towards DOAX looking worse. Mm-hmm. Um You know, we already talked about how VKA management in the Netherlands is thought to be really good. So this represents kind of a best case scenario for vitamin K antagonists. You know, the fact that rivaroxaban was the most commonly used DOAC also, you know, makes me wonder if we would see the same rates of bleeding with, you know, like apixaban, which is thought to be safer from a bleeding standpoint. Um, the authors also described needing to modify the study protocol because initially they uh, had patients switch when their INR was less than two, but found that that led to an increased frequency of bleeding events. I wasn't able to figure out how much, but I think it was mm. a maximum of, you know, 15% of bleeds probably occurred before the protocol switch because that was when, you know, 100 some of the 662 patients in that arm had been enrolled. So then they changed the protocol to to have people wait until the INR was less than 1.3. And... You know, there was also a built-in bias towards uh, the DOACs looking worse, which is uh, there was a delay between randomization and when people would actually switch to the DOAC, and that was a median of about 50 days. So any bleeds that happened during that time were attributed to DOACs, but actually patients were taking warf- or, uh, vitamin K antagonists during that time. Oh, wow. That seems yeah. like a really long time. To... <laughs> it, yeah, it feels like a flaw. It does feel like a long time. And, <laughs> and the nice thing about this type of observation is you, you should be able to verify if that was a big deal or not. And they do report in the supplement how many patients had bleeds after being randomized and what drug they were still on. And it was only seven cases of bleeding where people were uh, in the switch to DOAC group that were still taking their VK at that point. So probably not a big deal, even though it's a potential source of bias. Mm-hmm. So to bring it back around, how do you apply these results? You know, I think in the absence of the exact RCT data that you want, you have to be a little careful about extrapolating these results to new populations. I think if you've got a frail elderly patient who's doing well on warfarin, their time in the therapeutic range is acceptable. They don't mind the monitoring. To me, this suggests that you don't need to change things up. You don't need to mess with success. 
But I think individual decision-making for patients who are newly starting on treatment, you know, patients who might not do so well with warfarin, um, it could still be totally appropriate to start uh, that patient on a DOAC. And it still, you know, could be totally appropriate mm-hmm. to switch patients from warfarin to a DOAC if, for example, they have had very labile INRs. So uh, I feel like shared decision-making is kind of the theme of the night, but that's, what I, that's how I would use these results. Now, how many uh, spooky cakes would you give this, this one? I thought this was a, a great study and a great opportunity to to kind of dig into this and learn. So I'm going to give this four out of five spooky cakes. All right, that's not not it's bad. Score. Yeah, and speaking of spooky, Paul Paul's recording with a black cat, uh, which which is pretty much every episode, but still, <laughs> yeah, you know, feels like it's stuff at this point. It feels like it's it's it feels like it's for spooky cakes. So Paul, let's. Tell me about cotton fever, because this is something that I hadn't heard of, and I'm interested to learn more. Yeah, so I I barely remember how this came up. I think I was talking to one of my patients um, with a history of opioid use disorder who mentioned a history of cotton fever, and I was like, I don't know what that is. Um, And so I I did some some digging and found a couple of case reports, and one of them that I found was actually this uh, lovely 2014 case report from actually J. Jim by uh, Z et al. I hope I pronounced that okay. Um, cotton fever, does this? Does the patient know best? So I, I also really like the framing of this article. So Matt, to answer your question, cotton fever is, the, is a diagnosis of exclusion. It looks for all the world like sepsis, basically. So these patients with a history of uh, injection drug use, usually heroin, uh, will come in with usually acute symptoms, like six to 12 hours after injection, they'll be febrile, they'll feel awful, they will have a leukocytosis, they often have like chills, headache, myalgias, abdominal pain, like the type of patient that would scare me if I was still doing inpatient stuff. And then it's self-limited. It gets better anywhere between six hours and two days later. Uh, you know, no matter what you do, their symptoms kind of go away. And the, the thinking is that this is, they're still not entirely sure, but it could be um, a pyrogenic response to something in the cotton swab itself that the patients are using to draw their um, the, the drug suspension up through. It could be some sort of weird immunologic response to cotton, though I don't think that one has a whole lot of uh, adherence. Or it could be, a response to an endotoxin and types of bacteria that actually colonize cotton, which also sounds kind of like a stretch because I don't know how they would survive the cotton swab making process. But what do I know? Did you already say this? But what? how is the cotton being used exactly? Like, I, I don't where sure. are they putting the cotton? So you're so it's it's used as a as a as a filter, is my understanding. Um, so you're you're actually sort of dissolving um, whatever in in a, in a liquid, and then you're drawing it up through the cotton to kind of get rid of any particulate matters so that you're not uh, injecting particulates. If I understand how works work correctly. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. But the idea is that it's coming from the cotton and not whatever it is that you're injecting and not certainly not um, like the introduction of like skin flora, that kind of stuff. And it just the patients get better. And what I love about this article, what the authors talk about is on the day of discharge, the patient's like, I think I had cotton fever. And the author's like, I don't know what that is. So they looked it up. And they're like, oh, I think you had cotton fever. <laughs> and, it, and then I I was asking patients about this. Um, some of my, my patients who inject or have injected drugs. And I'm like, have you heard of cotton fever? Which it feels like a weird random question to me ask my patients, but they're used to me at this point. And like almost to a person like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. And if I, you talk to clinicians, they're like, I've never heard of that. So I just think the article acknowledges, and I think this really nicely underscores the importance of lived experience and appreciating that our patients actually know things and not assuming that we always know best. So I just, I love that the authors copped to the patient diagnosing themselves and made that the teaching point of the case in addition to this sort of this entity of cotton fever. So it's, it's a great little paper um, and the authors should be proud of themselves. It's about a decade old at this point, but I was just tickled when I read it. Yeah, probably, I bet you it's that people 
they they're not seeking care for it because they're they sort of know what it is and it's you know they've observed it they're like oh yeah sometimes i got a fever for a day and then it goes away and you know someone figured out somewhere along the line that it was it was due to the the cotton i guess but it's also a point the authors make there is a lot of information in that community where they're, they're sort of sharing educational resources that again that the physicians do not know about we're just we're not privy to so there's a lot of sort of self-education about these things that we should again really value it and, and talk to our patients which is I know, Matt, we try to avoid that when we can, but unfortunately, it seems like talking to patients, again, is the answer. Yeah, I suppose. Well, I have a, <laughs> I have a talking to patients type, uh, type thing to talk about next, which is bloating and belching. Paul, did you know there's a bloating and belching clinical practice update from the AGA? Did you, did you know about that? By Google Alert, yeah. Okay, it's, so I, this I've been is waiting for it. <laughs> this is uh, this was by Moshiri Drosman and Shockett, and this came out in 2023. This was an expert review that appeared in the journal Gastroenterology, basically talking about this bloating, uh, bloating or abdominal bloating or abdominal distension, and then belching as sort of two separate things and that these are disorders of gut-brain interaction. We talked about some of this with uh, Dr. the great Dr. Iris Wang. We talked about IBS and functional dyspepsia. This is th These are some more conditions that fall under that category. And belching, um, I, I just didn't know too much about this. I, I did have maybe a week or two ago, someone was asking me about belching a lot, and I, did, I had like no framework for approaching it. So if you look at this article, it does have uh, an algorithm for to approach both belching and bloating. Abdominal bloating and abdominal distension are grouped together in the same separate algorithm. So uh, a quick recap of this is that belching can be super gastric, uh, which tends to be more frequent and goes away with distraction or when patients are sleeping. And the idea is that super gastric is sort of a voluntary, almost like learned behavior. Versus gastric belching tends to be less frequent, Paul, but more forceful and uh, can be <laughs> can be associated with GERD. So that can be treated with proton pump inhibitor. But uh, both types of belching can be treated with diaphragmatic breathing. And we can link to a YouTube video that tells patients how to do that. And uh, and and really just you know reassurance and a, a little bit of education. Um, if it's really bothersome, and this will be a theme also when we talk about abdominal uh, bloating and distension, but central neuromodulators can also help. So those would be things like TCAs or SNRIs. Um, and, and really it's, they think this is like decreasing any kind of visceral hypersensitivity that is bothering the patient from this condition. And of course, uh, if you want to, there's fancy testing like high-res manometry and impedance monitor, impedance and pH testing, but you don't really need to do that. You can try some of these practical things. If you think it's gastric, give them a PPI. If you think it's super gastric, tell them to do some diaphragmatic breathing and maybe try a neuromodulator if it's really bothersome. Abdominal bloating and abdominal distension. Um, these, you know, you can go through a little bit of an algorithm. Some of the conditions you might think about would be constipation. Uh, you want to rule that out. Could they have a food allergy or intolerance, celiac, uh, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is really uh, sensitivity to fructans, SIBO, and, you know, some motility disorders, things like that. So abdominal bloating and distension also, Paul, respond to diaphragmatic breathing and central neuromodulators. 
um, if you didn't find something like a, a dietary thing or constipation, bacterial overgrowth, then then you can you can again resort to these things. So I would encourage people to check out these guidelines, especially if you have patients struggling with this. Um, Paula Rahul, any comments about about this? Are they like 124 pages, like most guidelines? Because I may not. No, check it this out. was. I think this was like eight pages, Paul. It oh, was a quick. It's lesson. a quick right. read. Yeah, it's a Great. quick read. Uh, like I said, this is an expert review. There's not a lot, as you might imagine, there's not a lot of evidence for this. And hypnotherapy is another thing. Uh, Iris, Dr. Iris Wang, uh, also said she, she actually does this for her patients. So, uh, that, which reminds me that a, a lot of these behavioral therapies are hard to come by. And more and more now there's be, there's like smartphone apps that are trying to address this. There's a lot of them for IBS out there. And hopefully there will be for some of these other conditions in the future. But this is something that I think hopefully can augment what we do as clinicians in the office. Some self-directed therapy that patients can do at home with these apps seems promising to me. So we're running towards the end of the show here, Rahul. We have one last hot take. And this one... Definitely important. Uh, first, let's. Is there a trial name? And then uh, tell the audience what this is about. All right. So, um, packing a big punch at the end of the show here. Um, this is the Acorn trial. Um, this was just published in an October issue of JAMA. Uh, Paul, any thoughts on the trial name? I, I know I called ID folks classy. This is a little bit of a, a swing and a miss, I think. <laughs> But you, you I don't, don't know where like... you get acorn from this subject matter. <laughs> yeah, it, um, there's some creative capitalization that's involved. But um, <laughs> in any case, um, this is actually kind of a big deal. I have a feeling that this is going to become a practice changing paper. And so, you know, we're just going to introduce this now. I'm sure there'll be lots more discussion on Twitter. And uh, uh, we may uh, do a walkthrough video uh, of this paper uh, down the road. But anyway, this um, is the acorn trial. This uh, is uh, a study that um, fills a gap in the literature because the comparative safety of piperacillin tazobactam and cefepime with respect to some important clinical outcomes, namely acute kidney injury and neurologic dysfunction, was really not known before this paper was done. Um, so these authors conducted a randomized open-label pragmatic superiority trial among adults with suspected infections who presented to the emergency department or the ICU at uh, Vanderbilt. Um, so this is a single center study, uh, and it was done from 2021 to 2022. The included patients were about 2,500 people, uh, a mean age of 58, um, and three quarters of them were also receiving vancomycin at the time of enrollment. Um, half of patients had sepsis, uh, it was mostly intra-abdominal and pulmonary sources. So these 2,500 patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to either cefepime or uh, piptazo, and that was done uh, using uh, an automated alert embedded in the, uh, in the EHR. So the physicians just had to decide whether antipsudomonal antibiotics were indicated, and then patients were randomized using the EHR. So pretty cool design. Um, the bottom line was that uh, at 14 days, um, after a median of three days of getting each of those antibiotics, there were no differences uh, in severe AKI, in death, or in major adverse kidney outcomes. However, patients who were randomized to cefepime did have slightly fewer days alive without coma or delirium. So the bottom line, you know, piptazo alone or in combination with vancomycin was really not associated with acute kidney injury, um, but it 
did seem to be associated with uh, increased, um, or excuse me, Piptazo was associated with less uh, or decreased delirium and coma than cefepime. Yeah, I just wonder, because there were so many articles, I think some of them were observational. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not an expert on this literature, of course, but between vancomycin and piptazo, just worrying that they caused acute kidney injury, and that was probably five, six years ago. So everyone switched to vancomycin and cefepime, <laughs> yep. and, and now I guess we're giving everyone delirium uh, and maybe not preventing kidney injury after all. So I'm, I'm not sure if, if this totally you know, puts that all to rest. But I, I will definitely be looking for comments on this because this was really this could be very practice changing for a lot of people. Yeah, th- this rabbit hole goes deep. If you uh, dig back into the uh, uh, Josh Farkas wrote a blog post about this very topic in oh. uh, 2022 that uh, was excellent. And it, it really persuaded me that the sort of idea that the combo of Vank and Piptazo having you know, more nephrotoxicity than either one alone didn't make a lot of mechanistic sense and that the evidence supporting that possibility was was quite weak. So, you know, this finally we have RCT level evidence to kind of, you know, answer this question. And uh, we'll dig more into this in a future show, I'm sure. But yeah, let's, I agree. let's call for Josh Farkas to do it. I mean, if anyone's going to go down rabbit holes and summarize like tons and tons of evidence, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's the guy to do it. So I would love to I would love to see that from him because uh, I, I can't figure it out, but I would love for him to do that. All right, let's you know. get some quick picks of the week. It's it's Halloween. Hang with us if you want to for a few more minutes. You know, Paul Williams is going to lead us off with what I imagine will be a stellar pick of the week. Uh, maybe, is it a spooky pick, Paul? It should be spooky if you can. But nope. Nope. Not okay. at all. Fair enough. It's, I'm going to do actually one and a quarter picks of the week. I hope that's okay. Now, I, I, you can do whatever you want, whip? Paul. This is your I'm show. I'm going to throw it out there. <laughs> Are you familiar with this songwhip.com? No. It's really cool. Uh, it's a website where if you type in an artist or even just a song, it will generate the Spotify link, the YouTube link, it'll, a link to all the sort of streaming services so people can kind of choose their favorite to actually listen to whatever song you want to share with them. And it does it free. You don't have to sign in or anything. It's very, very cool. Um, so I, I mentioned this only to introduce that I'm going to choose an album. I, I'd recommended a Royal Blood album earlier. Um, I can't remember when. I guess back when Typhoons came out, I think was the name of it. Royal Blood is this um, English duo. It is a bassist named Drummer. And the bassist does all kinds of pedal effects and overdubs and looping and stuff to kind of sound like a really full and kind of impressive band. And their most recent album uh, came out September 1st of this year. I was completely unaware that they dropped an album until one of our uh, patrons on the the Discord was like, hey, what do you think of the album? I was like, oh, no. (laughs) I I paid for it immediately because I like Royal Blood very much. It's their best work. Like it is. I am so in love with it. I, I'm just obsessed with it. Like I, I, they they started out as kind of sort of straight ahead rock, though really great straight ahead rock, and they've evolved over time. Like the last album was kind of dancey. This one has some really straightforward, kind of almost jazzy little pop numbers on it that are just perfect three minute songs. the The singer's voice remains perfect. Like he's got perfect pitch. It's wonderful to listen to. Like the songs are beautifully produced, well structured, sing alongable. The lyrics are great. So it's the the album is back to the water below. The band is Royal Blood and they just they keep getting better with every record. So can't recommend it enough. Yeah, Paul, I, I need to check this out. I, I have not had a chance to listen to the first out. I listened to uh, like a minute of the first song, but I, I need to get back to it. So thank that's a good recommendation. Uh, always enjoy your recommendations, Paul. I think that's really why most people listen to the show is for, for your recommendations. An <laughs> <laughs> hour change. Uh, all right, Rahul, uh, what what is your pick of the week? So I have one that is a little spooky. Um, I'm currently reading um, a sci-fi book called The Three-Body Problem. 
Uh, it's um, a book that was originally uh, written uh, by a Chinese author uh, named Lu Sushin. I'm only like five or six chapters in, but it is really spooky. And uh, I haven't sort of figured out what the big arc is yet, but it feels very appropriate for this time of year. It's kind of a thriller. It's kind of gripping. Uh, I sort of don't want to put it down. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a little creepy five or six chapters in. So check it out. The three body problem. And my pick of the week, I've been watching some older horror movies. This one is actually as old as I am because it came out in 1982. Uh, this was the original The Thing, Paul. Do not watch the 2011 version. I Ugh. After after watching The Thing, uh, th- this is 1982, so it's all practical effects. They are spectacular. They are gross. And uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I don't want to really spoil anything, but uh, I mean, it's been out for what, Paul, 40 years, 40 plus years. So <laughs> yeah. I could just say there's, there's one part, movie. there's one part where a character is, is using um, a defibrillator. And when he goes to put the paddles down, <laughs> the patient's stomach opens up and bites his arms off almost oh, up to the so elbow. Great. It is one of the greatest uh, scenes in movie history. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is really good. Um, so, so check that out. The, the original movie, The Thing. It's that Morricone score. Kurt Russell has never been better. Like it is just a spectacular hair in that particular movie. Keith David's great. Like the cast, Wilford Brimley, like you've never seen him before. Um, it just, yeah. What a great recommendation for spooky season. All right. So Paul, let's get to an outro. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Pensive. I was hoping there'd be a spooky take, but I like that one better, I think. (laughs) Get your show notes to thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, each month you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, which recaps the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and we want your feedback. So you can email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. And please, if you would, subscribe, rate, and review the show on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find the show. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME for all health professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And I wanted to give a special thanks to Paul and Rahul for helping to write and produce this episode. The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Chris the Chew Man Chew runs our Discord or moderates our Discord. And Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, until next Halloween, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. I've been Dr. Rahul Ganatra. I feel like this was a missed opportunity to do spooky nicknames that we should have planned out in advance. <laughs> oh, Maybe yeah. next year. We're not we're not very organized uh, for, <laughs> for that sort of thing anyway. I, I, like Poltergeist is as much as I can come up with. <laughs> oh! <laughs> as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. 